Good evening, everybody. Welcome to a new episode of the Glenn Greenwald podcast. I seem to be making some decent enough progress in my ongoing quest to try and ensure I appear for this podcast at least once a week. And I'm trying, as I said last week, to zero in on what will be more or less a regular date and time just to make it easier to to ensure that. Um, it's looking like I haven't picked a date yet, but Monday or Tuesday night, uh, at 9 PM seems to be a, a decent time from the perspective of, of my work schedule and for what's good for everybody. Um, so we'll try out Monday and Tuesday at nine o'clock until we're able to commit to a specific date, but I really am glad that you're able to join me as the title indicates. I basically wanted to do a discussion of, an issue that I think, though, is getting some attention, isn't getting nearly enough, given how rapidly it's changing and escalating virtually on a weekly basis, and that's the U.S. role in the war in Ukraine. And I think what happened here, if I can kind of look back 10 weeks or so since the Russian invasion on February 24th, retrospectively, and before I, I delve in, just want to note that for those of you who are new to the podcast or new to this platform, uh, the way it works is it's designed to host podcasts. So I will speak for a while in that spirit. But uh, its unique feature is that it enables excellent interactivity between myself and members of the audience. So if you have a question that you want to ask or a comment you want to make or anything that you want to raise with me, whether I talk about it or not, uh, just click the raise hand feature at the bottom of your uh, screen your telephone and you will be put into the queue in the order in which you do that. And I will then try and leave as much time as possible uh, to take as many calls as I can. I'll take one after the next in the order in which you were, uh, you placed yourself in the queue. Anyway, looking back retrospectively uh, over the last 10 weeks in terms of how the debate or more accurately the non-debate over U.S. policy toward the war in Ukraine has evolved, I think what happened is the following. In the weeks prior to the Russian invasion, when the U.S. government was leaking that an invasion was highly likely, that um, that uh, there was clearly a likelihood of some sort of conflict, given what everyone could see was the massing of tens of thousands of troops, if not more, of Russian soldiers on the Ukrainian uh, border. There started to be a debate about both the causes of this war and specifically what the U.S. did, if anything, to provoke the war or what it could be doing to try and avert it. There were people like Tucker Carlson and, and Tulsi Gabbard in particular making a couple of arguments, one of which is that the U.S. really should have no role in an eventual war between Russia and Ukraine because the U.S. doesn't have sufficient interests in what happens to Ukraine in order to risk involvement in a war with Russia, the largest nuclear power on the planet, a view that, you know, had been long the conventional wisdom in Washington before the war. Barack Obama most eloquently, in my view, articulated this view in a 2016 interview with Jeffrey Goldberg in The Atlantic when he was somewhat aggressively asked by Goldberg, a neoconservative, voicing the bipartisan anger with Obama 
over why he didn't do more to confront Putin in general and in, and specifically to arm the Ukrainians, Obama said, given history, given geography, Russia will always view Ukraine as a vital interest, whereas Ukraine will never be a vital interest to the United States. And therefore, no matter what we do, Russia will always maintain escalatory dominance in Ukraine, because given that it's not a vital interest to the United States, we'll never risk war with Moscow in order to defend Ukrainian sovereignty or Ukrainian borders. That's just the reality, said Obama. And it wasn't necessarily a popular view, but certainly it wasn't an outrageous view. No one accused him of being a Kremlin agent for having said that or a traitor or anything else. The idea that Ukraine wasn't of a vital interest to the United States has sort of been a very uncontroversial view in Washington. It's the reason it's not a NATO member. Uh, It's the reason that Russia has been able to interfere in in Ukraine without the U.S. going to war. So that was the view that Obama had always expressed, a view that many people in Washington had expressed, particularly the kind of realist foreign policy uh, camp represented by the kind of Bush 41 foreign policy advisors like Jim Baker and Brent Scowcroft, the people Obama actually admires most and shaped his foreign policy based on. Same with Henry Kissinger, who was always saying not just that NATO expansion into Ukraine would be madness since it would provoke a war with Russia, but also that we shouldn't regard Ukraine as a vital interest to the United States because there's nothing in Ukraine that justifies that. It doesn't have the geostrategic importance needed for it to be a vital interest. It doesn't have the resources needed to be a vital interest. But obviously it's a vital interest to Russia, given that it's right on the other side of the Russian border and not just on the other side of the Russian border, but has twice been used by Germany in the 20th century to invade Russia in two different wars that virtually wiped out the Soviet Union, cost them tens of millions of of lives to to fight the Germans. Obviously, what happens in Ukraine is of gigantic interest to Russia, but not to the United States for obvious reasons. So people who are saying that, look, I hope there's no war. If there is a war, it will be unjust. It'll be horrific. But the U.S. doesn't have an interest in it. Where people like Tucker Carlson saying, why should I, as a U.S. citizen, be willing to risk U.S. lives or U.S. resources to to defend Ukrainian borders. It doesn't seem like as something as an American citizen I should be doing. Or people like Tulsi Gabbard who were saying this war is going to be horrific, something she probably was particularly uh, acute, saw acutely because of her own involvement in war. When you when you're actually involved in wars, um, you you know tend to see them in in different ways as people who aren't. She was saying this war is actually going to be heinous. And so we should be doing everything we can to prevent it. We, the United States, we should be trying to strike a deal with Russia, with the Ukrainians involved, to pledge never to put Ukraine in NATO, which everyone knows they're they're likely never to be. And we should stop interfering in Ukraine and declare Ukraine this kind of neutral buffer zone between the West and Russia. Not because that was the moral outcome Maybe it is, maybe it isn't, but because the war was going to be so deadly, if it actually happened, that she believed that the U.S. should do everything possible to avert it, to prevent it diplomatically. And just for those two arguments, which should have been considered very uncontroversial or at least certainly viable in the mainstream, namely that Ukraine isn't of enough vital interest to the United States to risk involvement in that war, and that we should have been doing more to avert the war diplomatically and could have been doing more. 
just for that, those two in particular, but other people as well, were completely vilified. I mean, just go look at the week before February 24th, what was said about Tulsi Gabbard and Tucker Carlson, just repeatedly called a Russian asset, guilty of treason, guilty of being a traitor, um, all kinds of things. Not Russia, or for saying that Putin is right, because it role should be. So that kind of vilification of dissent, everybody saw that. And as always, when you see that kind of vilification against people who have a big platform and can withstand it, aimed at people like Tucker Carlson and, and Tulsi Gabbard, people who have less protection are going to get the message that maybe it's best for them to kind of remain quiet or to just get on board with the consensus, which was that Putin was Hitler. This was the worst war since World War II, if not worse. And that we had the obligation, the moral and strategic obligation to do everything possible to help Ukraine. But I think that week before the war really prevented there from being any dissent. And then the week or two after the war, when the invasion happened, the way in which the Western media covered the war was very different than the way it covers most other wars. I mean, just think about the wars that the U.S. has waged in Iraq or Afghanistan or the Saudi war in Yemen that's fought with the critical aid of the U.S. and the U.K. Both countries, the U.S. and the U.K., could cause that war to end in one day by cutting off weapons or intelligence or support. Think about how much in the New York Times or on CNN you ever really see the carnage from that war, how often you hear from the victims how often you hear from the relatives of the victims weeping and crying and talking about their plight, even though those wars are obviously every bit as heinous as what's taking place in Ukraine. What's taking place in Ukraine is not any worse than those other wars. All wars until war crimes and atrocities, wars, the absolute worst thing humanity can unleash on itself. But because of the way it was covered very differently than wars that the U.S. is involved in, the coverage was so intense and very one-sided, obviously. It, it, it made it seem like this was the most inhumane war ever fought, rather than what it was, which was a war that was horrific to look at and inhumane, but the way that the way all wars were. And so any decent person looking at that, and it wasn't just the one-sided coverage, it was that any attempt to show the other side was actually censored in the West. RT was taken off the air by YouTube, by, uh, throughout all of Europe people who were deemed guilty of expressing a pro-Russian view, which meant just trying to show the other side of the war of Ukrainian atrocities, Ukrainian war crimes were routinely censored as well. So it wasn't just one-sided coverage by the corporate media. It was also a censorship campaign by big tech served to create a picture, a very emotionally moving picture of this war that basically the Russians were acting like the Nazis and that the atrocities being committed in Ukraine were unlike anything seen in decades since basically the Nazi army marched through Eastern Europe and committed crimes against humanity and genocide. And seeing those images and being bombarded with those images and knowing that your neighbors and colleagues and friends were, it's almost impossible to escape a propaganda system that close, that one-sided, 
it was very difficult. You, I knew it and everybody knew it to try and persuade people to think rationally about the war. And I don't say that critically of people. I mean, if you're looking that closely at a war, the correct and moral and healthy reaction is to be absolutely horrified and infuriated. And if you are looking at that and feeling that, you don't want to hear any questioning from the person next to you about, well, are we really getting the right story about how this war happened and who's to blame and who caused it and who provoked it and who could be solving it or what role we should be playing in it? You, you just, you're so carried away by your normal, natural, healthy human emotions that all you want is to feel your anger and desire to destroy the people you believe are responsible, which in this case was Russia and specifically Putin. They, they personalized the war to Putin, just like we look at how every war is propagandized the war in Vietnam was personalized to Ho Chi Minh. The war in Iraq was personalized to Saddam Hussein. The war in Syria to Assad. The war in Libya to Gaddafi. It's always this kind of singular villain that you focus all your hatred on. You're told they're basically like the new Hitler. And therefore, any attempt to you know, oppose the war against them is immediately cast as siding with this new Hitler and the propaganda is very effective. And so I think that the couple of weeks leading up to the war and the couple of weeks after created a climate where basically no one wanted to dissent. It was, the idea was, okay, we're on Ukraine's side. Fly the Ukrainian flag above the American flag. Have every American politician in both parties put the Ukrainian flag pin on their label, on their lapel, rather. For some reason, have everyone declare that our highest duty is not to serve the interests of the American people, but of the Ukrainian people. No one questioned that. And what was really interesting was it was actually questioned, that idea, in most parts of the world outside of the U.S. and Western Europe. If you look at who has decided to stay neutral in the war, if you look at who refused to sanction Russia, it isn't just a few stray trivial countries. It's basically all of the major countries outside of Western Europe and the U.S., with a few exceptions like Australia and Japan. But the largest countries in the world, unaligned countries, China, India, Pakistan, Brazil, Bangladesh, you just go down the list of the most populous countries. Most of them refuse to accept this sort of one-sided morality narrative. They saw the war in, in, in much more clouded and, and morally ambiguous terms. They certainly didn't want to unite behind the United States and, and NATO, whose motives they distrust for all kinds of reasons, or maybe their own self-interest militated against joining into this consensus. But it wasn't just, you know, sort of the, the any one ideology. I mean, here in Brazil, for example, Lula da Silva, who was a two-term president of Brazil, very highly regarded in the international community, not an ideological extremist, expected to win again uh, the presidency in Brazil this year in October when he runs against Bolsonaro, supported by most of the Western establishment, you know, came out in an interview with Time magazine two weeks ago and basically said, I think both sides are of equal blame, get equal blame for the war in Ukraine, Russia because they invaded, but Ukraine because they allowed the US and the EU to kind of manipulate Zelensky into believing that he can defeat Russia and, and kind of pushing them away from a diplomatic solution. 
and saying that neither side is is right and the only outcome here is a diplomatic solution. And to a, an American or Western ear, this sounds shocking and villainous because nobody says it here. But in the rest of the world, that's the, that's the prevailing view. But they just don't live in the closed propaganda system that we do. And, you know, it was one thing for there to be very little dissent at the beginning of the war, the first week or two, because the role of the U.S. was more rhetorical. We were sending some money, not a lot of money, just some money. But what kind of happened is each week, the U.S. role in the war escalated incrementally. It's hate to use this cliche, but it is the frog in the boiling pot, boiling water cliche. You know, you just turn the temperature up enough each time with the frog in it. Starts off with kind of warm water and before the frog knows it, because it's incrementally increased, the water is boiling and he doesn't jump out because he doesn't realize anything has changed. I think this kind of view on the part of a lot of people, well, you know what, it's just best for me to stay away from this debate, continued even as the U.S. role got way more serious than it did at the beginning, to the point where we're now sending very heavy weaponry that in February and March was considered unthinkable because of what it would mean for our involvement in a direct war against Russia. We have intelligence officials on the ground and are helping Ukrainian forces target very important Russian military assets and then bragging about it in the United States. So, and, and, and most of all was the money. So that's what I want to focus on, just because it's a reflection of how rapidly our involvement has spiraled out of control. So, as many of you probably know, about uh, a week ago, the Biden White House announced that it was requesting a new spending package for the war in Ukraine of $33 billion, $33 billion. Now, that is on top of the $14 billion the U.S. has already spent on the war in Ukraine. And most people do not know that the U.S. has spent uh, $14 billion in the war on Ukraine because it happened very silently and very kind of subtly. The Congress authorized $3.5 billion early on, and so Biden was tapping into that. And every 10 days or so, they would kind of just announce that they were sending another few hundred million dollars. So I just want to go through the increments of the announcement. So on February 26, two days after the invasion, Biden approves $350 million in military aid for Ukraine. That's Reuters. March 16th, two weeks later, three weeks later, Biden announces $800 million in military aid for Ukraine. The New York Times. March 30th, two weeks later. Ukraine to receive additional $500 million in aid from the U.S., Biden announces, NBC News. April 12th, two weeks later, U.S. to announce $750 million more in weapons for Ukraine, officials say. That's Reuters. And then May 6th, three weeks later, Biden announces new $150 million weapon package for Ukraine. So that drew down the $3.5 billion Congress initially approved. Very quietly in mid-March, Congress had approved an overall expenditure for the war in Ukraine of $14 billion. So the Biden administration all this time is meeting with the leading weapons manufacturers, Raytheon and, and Boeing and General Dynamics, and telling them, look, ever since the war ended in Afghanistan, 
we know that the demand for your weapons has severely reduced. But now the demand is rapidly increasing and we need you to seriously speed up your weapons production in part because the U.S. had been sending so many weapons to Ukraine that it depleted its own stockpile, leaving us vulnerable. We sent so many anti-tank missiles and javelins and all kinds of other weapons that are foundational to American military force that our own stockpiles were depleted. So we needed to buy unexpectedly a gigantic amount from these weapons manufacturers. But also U.S. officials are saying outright, out loud, that they don't expect or even want the war in Ukraine to last months. They see it as a war lasting years. Now, my view from the beginning has been uh, that uh, um, the U.S. strategy seemed clear, which was it didn't want a diplomatic solution in Ukraine. It wanted to fuel the war to trap Russia inside Ukraine, to weaken Russia, to destroy Russia, to facilitate regime change in Russia. That was a very unpopular view in the beginning. I think there's a lot more evidence for it now, including U.S. officials boasting that that's their goal saying that they want to stay until the end, that they victory must be theirs. There's reports that Zelensky has been pressured by the UK and even by the US to avoid what the US and the UK and the West regard as an insufficient diplomatic solution to keep fighting, promising to send more and more weapons there. It seems obvious the US definitely expects, and I think hopes, that the war will last for years to come. Just like the U.S. trapped Russia in Afghanistan in the 80s, the U.S. itself got trapped in Afghanistan for two decades. The Russians have been bogged down in other places like Syria. I think that was part of the U.S. goal. And so we've already spent $14 billion. Biden wanted a billion. And that would mean that the U.S. will have spent $48 billion just 10 weeks of this war on the other side of the world in which the U.S. is not a direct belligerent. That is an extraordinary amount of money after just 10 weeks, especially because given the U.S. consensus that this war is going to be going on for a long, long time, obviously, as we say, we're going to be fighting with Ukraine until the end, until the last Ukrainian. This is just the first amount, the first tranche of money, not the last. It's almost impossible to imagine that it won't be a matter of hundreds of billions of dollars, if not close to a trillion dollars by the end. Always. So Biden announces this extremely remarkable $33 billion price. And both parties in Congress get it and they reach an agreement immediately, which is that the $33 billion is not enough. That it should be billions more. And they fought over how much more. And Nancy Pelosi and Kevin McCarthy and Mitch McConnell and Chuck Schumer all agreed very quickly that it should be $40 billion. They just kind of arbitrarily increased Biden's already gigantic request from $33 billion to $40 billion. And they have now fast-tracked it, created special legislative processes to ensure that there will be a very quick approval and sending of this bill to Biden's staff so they can get this money and these weapons to Ukraine. 
Nancy Pelosi wrote a letter to the Powell saying, "This is there's nothing more urgent than getting this funding and this military aid to Ukraine. Nothing more urgent. Not the lives of American citizens, not inflation, not the inability of Americans to get health care or who are living in poverty or who can't go to college or buy insulin or get baby formula. Nothing is more important, she said. Nothing is of a higher priority than getting this aid to the Ukrainians, to helping the Ukrainians, not helping the Americans. So now there's a very quick fast track process. Originally, the White House wanted to pair it with a bill that would allocate $10 billion, so a fraction, for COVID vaccines and testing to help Americans. But that bill ran into problems primarily due to Republican opposition. And they immediately said, well, we're not going to wait around getting a deal to help Americans. We're going to separate the bills to make sure the Ukraine aid passes very quickly. And we'll see if we can find some money for Americans and COVID relief at some time in the future. So assuming that $40 billion is allocated, as it seems extremely likely that it will, there's basically nobody objecting other than Marjorie Taylor Greene, who's calling it the Ukraine first America last bill and objecting to provisions that would authorize money to the CIA for reasons that the Congress isn't being told. Like Donald Trump Jr. Jr. Donald Trump Jr. today said, um, Americans can't get baby formula, but we're sending $40 billion to Ukraine. So there's some opposition on the kind of populist right fringes like that. And then there's some on the kind of left wing fringes like Noam Chomsky who gave an interview a couple of weeks ago saying there's only one statesman of any stature who's saying that the key is not to continue to fight, but to find a diplomatic solution. And in Chomsky's words, his name is Donald J. Trump. So there's a little bit of dissent on the really fringe left. Lots of leftists were mad at Chomsky for saying that. And then, as I said, there's a lot of dissent in the mainstream left internationally. But in the United States, there's overwhelming bipartisan consensus. There's no daylight between Bernie Sanders and Marco Rubio. Lindsey Graham sounds like Nancy Pelosi. Even AOC sounds like, you know, Ted Cruz or Jim Jordan. So this is going to pass for sure, this $40 billion. So let me just put into context the amount of expenditures just after eight weeks. So, yeah, there, people are saying Chip, Chip Roy actually Thomas Massey have expressed dissent. I don't want to say nobody, but I mean, the, you know, I, there was a, a vote on what was called the Lend-Lease Act, which is how the Roosevelt administration stayed involved in World War II before the American public was ready to fight directly in it, which basically says the U.S. has unlimited authority to aid any belligerents in a war that they regard as vital, and that obviously includes Ukraine. Uh, the vote, there were 10 votes against it in the House, all Republican MAGA votes, no squad votes against it, no Democratic votes against it. Ilhan Omar has made a few sounds concerned about too much, but, I, but it's really on the fringes. I mean, the overwhelming consensus is to do this. So it's going to happen. It's going to be $40 billion on top of the $14 billion already spent just in the first 10 weeks. So that's $54 billion already with less than three months into this war. So let's just put that into context. First of all, the average expenditure for the United States in the war in Afghanistan over 20 years was $46 billion. Now, 
the war in Afghanistan was the United States' war, not someone else's war. And there was at least a kind of pretense or uh, proximity to a claim of self-defense. At least at the beginning, the argument was Afghanistan had harbored Osama bin Laden and al-Qaeda, and that was how they were able to attack the United States. They refused to turn them over when the U.S. demanded it. And so that was a just cause for a self-defense war against the Taliban because they helped the U.S. get attacked. I don't agree with that argument, especially over time. There's a lot of holes in that argument. But at least it was an actual U.S. war with some touchstone to self-defense. And even there, the U.S. only spent $46 billion a year on average for that war. We're now about to spend $56 billion, $10 billion more for the first 10 weeks of a war in which we're supposedly not even a direct belligerent, in which until like six seconds ago, the consensus was it was over a country that the U.S. had no vital interest in. So more than the average we spent in the war in Afghanistan, and this is the amazing part, we're almost spending on the war in Ukraine more than the entire military budget for Russia for the entire year. Each year, Russia spends $65.9 billion on its military. So we're about to allocate $55 billion for the, just the part of this war in, in, in Ukraine. Never mind all the other wars we're involved in in Yemen and Ethiopia and bombing campaigns with drones and all the troops stationed all over. I mean, the U.S. military budget is $778 billion. And usually what happens is the same thing as what happened here. The Pentagon submits a military budget to the Congress. Of course, it's inflated. The Congress gets it and they send it back with an increase above what the Pentagon even asked for. So I think, you know, the Pentagon will ask for $740 billion. People in Congress will get their hands on it and say, this is not enough. It needs to be $778 billion, which is what it is for the last year. So to put that in context, $778 billion obviously means the U.S. is spending more on its military by far than any other country. It's spending three times more than the second place country, which is China. Spends about $250, $240 billion a year. It's a little hard to know for sure, but in that range. So the U.S. spends three times more on its military than what China spends. And the U.S. spends more on its military than the next 13 countries combined. So the U.S. is trying to say that Russia is a grave existential threat to the international order, even though the United States is about to spend more in 10 weeks on this war than, the, than Russia spends for its entire military for the entire year. Which is why Barack Obama, on his way out, when confronted about the fact that he didn't do enough to confront Russia, was trying to say, look, are you guys crazy? Russia's not a world power. They're like a regional power at most. They have an economy smaller than Italy's. Russia's not a military threat to the United States. And you see the conflicts that Russia has fought in Georgia, in, in, in Chechnya, in, in Syria, now in Ukraine. They fight in their, in their region like a regional power would or with their kind of client states, like in Syria. They're not a world power ready to march through Western Europe or any of the, let alone threaten the United States, 
which is what Obama was saying on his way out of the, out. And you just look at the amount they spend and, and you just see that we spend more than 10 times on our military than they do. They're a nuclear power that makes them dangerous. It makes confrontation with them dangerous for sure. But it doesn't make them a threat to the United States in terms of its military activity. So that just puts in context how much we're spending of U.S. resources. To say nothing of the military involvement, the intelligence involvement, the risk that we're bringing to American citizens through a potential escalation of the war unintentionally with Russia, which can easily happen, obviously can risk nuclear annihilation or even like a world war short of that. So the question becomes, why? 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 How in any remote way are Americans benefiting from the war in Ukraine? How are Americans, ordinary Americans, the lives of American citizens, the people the U.S. government is supposed to be representing, the people whose lives the U.S. government has the primary obligation to materially improve, how are American citizens' lives endangered in any way by the Russian invasion of Ukraine? And conversely, how are the lives of American citizens improved in any material way by sending tens of billions and soon to be hundreds of billions of dollars into the coffers of weapons manufacturers in order to send heavy, heavy weaponry to the Ukrainian army to keep this war going. I mean, I guess for, for a lot of people, that seems not even to be a relevant question. I keep seeing all these arguments that are like moral in nature that, oh, Russia is evil and the Ukrainians are innocent. And even if you believe that, and that's a valid view, right? Not saying that makes you crazy if you if you want to see the conflict in such simplistic moral terms of good versus evil. Things are rarely validly seen as this pure good versus pure evil. But if you want to see the war in, in Ukraine with Russia that way, have at it. It still doesn't answer the question of should the U.S. government involve itself in this war, especially to this extent, unless it can first mount an argument that doing so materially improves the lives of American citizens? Is that any longer a prerequisite for the U.S. government to adopt a policy that it improves the lives of the people it represents? No, I think you can look back on wars in retrospect in Vietnam, Iraq, Syria, Libya, Afghanistan. And I think people have largely come to conclude that Americans, ordinary Americans, paid a huge price for those wars. They lost their lives in those wars to fight in them while the people in Washington didn't send their own sons and daughters or themselves to fight. People got really rich on those wars, but not ordinary Americans. So I think there's a growing realization that these wars don't actually improve the lives of ordinary Americans. So the first question is, does that even matter? Is that the primary role of the U.S. government to adopt policies to improve the lives of U.S. citizens? I don't think a lot of people believe it is. I, the Most of the justifications I see for the U.S. role in Ukraine have nothing to do with arguments about the, the lives of the American people. And what's particularly striking about that is it would be one thing if this were some booming time of economic prosperity where most Americans were being taken care of. The opposite is true. We just came out of a two-year pandemic 
where small businesses died by the tens of thousands. The economy was shut down. People suffered in terms of their mental health. We're plagued with enormous inflation. There are millions of people, including children in America, living below the poverty line. 30 million people don't have health insurance. People can't afford to send their kids to college and are therefore postponing or eliminating that desire altogether. People can't buy insulin if they have diabetes. They have to sometimes try and save it in ways that are dangerous. There's a shortage of infant formula in the United States because of supply chain. Just, I mean, there's an endless number of ways that Americans are deprived, not thriving. So to send this sum of money to benefit Ukrainians and having U.S. politicians focus so much on Ukraine, seemingly at the expense of the people of their country, seems really striking to me. Now, there is a group of people who are clearly benefiting. And that is the weapons manufacturers. What Dwight Eisenhower warned of as when he called it the military industrial complex, as a lot of Obama officials like to refer to it as the national security blob, as a lot of us began to refer to it as the deep state, which contrary to the popular perception is not a term that Sean Hannity invented in 2017, but a term that comes from decades of left-wing scholarship about how the United States government functions through a deep state and invisible uh, group of permanent power factions that operate in the dark. Whatever you want to call it, they are certainly benefiting, as they always do during war. Raytheon, which is lucky enough to have as the current Secretary of Defense, the Pentagon chief, someone who just a year ago or a year and a few months ago was sitting on the board of directors, Lloyd Austin, Along with, uh, I believe it's uh, Boeing, um, are the primary producers of javelins, and they didn't have a uh, they didn't have a market with the end of oh, it's that with Raytheon. They didn't have a market with the end of the war in Afghanistan. Now suddenly they have one of the most lucrative markets ever. And as I said, the White House is meeting with them, urging them to rapidly increase the supply of their products, given how much demand there now is for it suddenly. The Pentagon met with their executives multiple times. Biden visited a Lockheed Martin uh, facility on May 3rd and praised Lockheed Martin for being heroic and helping the heroic Ukrainian. They're benefiting for sure, as they always do. The agencies and think tanks in Washington that thrive off war, they're benefiting massively. The pundit class that loves war, the media class that loves to cover it, that gives them ratings, that gives them purpose, they're benefiting. But how are ordinary Americans benefiting in any way from this new gigantic transfer of wealth to this other country? And then the last point I want to make, and then I'll open it up for questions in the queue is the political aspect is really fascinating to me. You know, as somebody who started writing about politics in 2005 to oppose the war on terror, and it was heavily influenced by things like the Pentagon Papers and Daniel Ellsberg and ultimately the writings of Noam Chomsky and the need to oppose the secrecy and abuses of the security state, which is the work I did with Snowden. 
I've always watched the American left be the leaders in standing up in times like this and saying, wait a minute, why are we spending tens or hundreds of billions of dollars on this new war when American citizens are suffering? Shouldn't we be spending that war on our own citizens? Who are the people on the American left even involved in the debate in Ukraine? None of It's basically they're invisible. They've just absented themselves almost completely. And, and instead you have the dominant forces being the bi- the establishment wings of both parties, the, the permanent bipartisan consensus in favor of war. You know, Nancy Pelosi and Kevin McCarthy, Chuck Schumer, Mitch McConnell, those people, Marco Rubio, Lindsey Graham, Adam Smith, Adam Schiff, all those people. And there's just no, no one on the left saying any of this. And it's kind of left to the populist right. I mean, the Democratic Party, as someone in the comments section just said, is now led by neocons. They worship at the altar of Bill Crystal and David Frum and Liz Cheney and all those warmongers that Democrats hated when they worked in the Bush administration are now their heroes and their guiding lights, Max Boot, all those kind of people. And if you want to go and question U.S. foreign policy in Ukraine, if you want to go and dissent from what the Biden administration is doing, there are basically a tiny handful of places you can go in American media. You can obviously go to some right-wing media. And then on television, you can go on the 8 o'clock and 10 o'clock hours on Fox News, hosted by Tucker Carlson and Laura Ingram, where dissent is there rather regularly. But on CNN and NBC and in the editorial and op-ed pages, of the New York Times and the Washington Post, it's lockstep unity in favor of this war, which is stunning and frightening and bizarre. And I think there's a lot of reasons for it, uh, including the anti-Russian animus on which Democrats have been feeding for more than six years now because of Russiagate and the, the preposterous conspiratorial belief that the reason they lost in 2016 was because of Russia and Putin. And not because they nominated one of the most unpopular and unlikable political candidates in modern history with a neoliberal ideology that is despised and rejected throughout the entire democratic world. But instead, they blame Putin and Russia. But I think there's a lot to explore there about why. But whatever else is true, when the president demands $33 billion for a war on which they've already spent $14 billion, and Congress just instantly increases it through bipartisan consensus by $7 billion. It at least involved, uh, demands and, and requires a lot of journalistic spotlight and debate and discussion and scrutiny, and it's just not getting it. So that's why I wrote about it today and decided to do a podcast discussion about this topic. So I'm going to questions. As I said, any questions that you have about anything I just said or wrote tonight or Anything else that might be on your mind, um, it's an open forum, so go ahead and make yourself heard. The first uh, caller, I'm actually, am I able to see the names? Yes, uh, Steve. So when I call you, just uh, click the microphone icon, you'll unmute yourself, and then you can be heard. Go ahead, Steve. Hey, go ahead. Uh, Thanks for the conversation. It's really interesting so far. Uh, My question and thoughts are around the numbers specifically. I don't know how we got to a place where we become just agnostic to you know, more zeros and billions and even trillions. 
But it seems that like something's off the beaten path here um, when it comes to government and spending. Um, you know, even just pull, I live in New York City and even just pulling back soccer tweeted out the other day that, the, you know, now it's costing $63 million for eight escalators in the New York City subway. Um, I mean, now it's what's the difference, you know, 33 to 40 billion for the layman. You know, what what even is that? Um, and I was just doing some some research myself. You know, we used to have instead of putting the numbers around something, we used to have a project. So, you know, the Hoover Dam cost, you know, modern day under a billion um, when we actually used to, you know, build things and in, in projects. And I know uh, David and the all in guys have talked about this. Um, you know, it, it, it seems like there's just the narrative is completely off, um, whereas where is this 40 billion going? We know it's going to Ukraine. What is it buying? What are we what are we purchasing? What, how much is the uh, the defense contractors taking off the top? What weapons are is our 40 billion even buying and how can that benefit, you know, the Ukrainians in general? It's just it seems like we're, we're so, you know, at depth to what this money is going to in any sense of the word, whenever government is involved. And I'm just wondering, I mean, you obviously have called out to it and, you know, have done a great job. It's just really sad to see that, you know, I can't even have a a conversation with anyone who's not completely plugged in to know that this is even happening around us or what it's going to. So just hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, it's a great question. You know, one of the things I realized when I first started writing about politics and I began writing with a very narrow uh, range of interest. I was a constitutional lawyer. I want, mostly wanted to write about, you know, Bush Cheney Article Two executive power theories that have been adopted in the name of the war on terror to justify things like Guantanamo and and rendition and detention without due process. And I quickly realized you couldn't meaningfully write about that without confronting the media narrative. And so you had to study how the media function propagandized and misled people because without that you were going to talk to a brick wall. And over the years, I've had to constantly expand my my ability to understand how things work because they all interrelate with one another. And for a long time, I did kind of avoid economic questions because I I never had an interest in it. I never cared to study it. I never um, spent time trying to understand it. I figured that it was separate from the questions I, I was interested in with civil liberties and imperialism. And over the last year or two, I've become very interested in, in, in Bitcoin. And I don't mean as an investment vehicle. It doesn't, I don't invest in it. It doesn't interest me for that. But because of the political and, and social implications, and one obvious reason is the potential to augment privacy, which has been a long time interest of mine. But one of the things that really drew me in and made me argue that the left should be a lot more interested in Bitcoin than it is. They have this reflexive antipathy toward it. They just don't understand it. They hate it. Um, is that the way that the U.S. funds these endless wars and funds everything in general, in fact, and libertarians have been pointing this out forever, it's been a big cause for Ron Paul and the like, is there's no touchstone between American spending and anything that's real in the world. So it's not that the American government receives $40 billion in your hard-earned taxpayer dollars and then gets to spend that $40 billion on, say, improving a social program or augmenting scholarship opportunities or health insurance access or sending it to Ukraine. It's not like it's a zero sum game that way because there's no limit on U.S. spending because it's just a game. It's a game of credit. U.S. just borrows forever. It has infinite, unlimited credit. It's mostly borrowing from China that funds all these wars, ironically. 
But it's also the fact that the dollar is the hegemonic currency. And if the dollar is the reserve currency on which the world relies, that's what enables you infinite U.S. borrowing, which in turn is what finances imperialism and endless war. And these numbers that, as you say, just have no meaning anymore because they don't have any meaning because they're not related to anything. They're not grounded in anything real. You know, they used to be used to be grounded in the gold standard, you know, like some relationship to the oil market. It's just detached from anything now. And and one of the reasons Bitcoin interests me is because it can overthrow the dollar, which is why people like Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump both are warning about its dangers, because it can actually do that. But that is, I think, an important part of this equation is, you know, we kind of tend to talk about it the way we talk about our household budget, like, wow, John, this war in Ukraine, and we could be using that money for better things. And if we spend too much, we're going to go and that's just not the, the reality. It's such a complex, unlimited system of credit and borrowing that basically these numbers do have no meaning, which is why I think they can just be arbitrarily thrown. And as you say, there's almost no due, due diligence or oversight exercised at all. I mean, if you really were to raise the question, you know, how much of this $40 billion is being spent efficiently, how much of it is going into the coffers of to pay, you know, Raytheon executives enormous sums of, of profit, how much of it is ending up in the hands of extremists in, in Ukraine, how much of it is just disappearing on the black market. There's no attempt to find any of that out because no one cares about the money. And if you did ask any of those questions and say we should hold up this stuff and to be accused of being a pro-Russian propagandist. So the easiest thing to do is get all through knowing that the money is actually unlimited because the money is fiat money and has basically no value to anybody other than the people who are enriching themselves off of it. And I do think that's one of the major problems. Yeah, I appreciate that. I mean, it's, it, it seems as though everything is just almost a rounding error at this point. And I don't know if, you know, having those, bringing those boring C-SPAN uh, television things back to, to the prominent fold and going through line item by line item. But it sure feels like there's just multiple consultants that are touching this money before it's even going to the real purpose. And it's, it's sad. It's sad. So yeah, I appreciate yeah, it. Just, it. The sleaze and the corruption is um, basically unlimited. Um, yeah. And just there's no incentive to try and stop it. Thank you so much, Steve. Those were great questions. And I think added really critical things to the context of the discussion. Next up, name wrong. It's hard for me to see, but I think it's Carlos. Go ahead, Carlos. Hi, Glenn. Uh, just a quick, quick couple of questions for you. So, with the money in Ukraine, is it going with any conditions that Ukraine has to pay it back at all? Because I don't think that they have to. I think this is basically like a gift that goes to Raytheon and all of the weapons contractors. I mean, you mentioned that the U.S. have Jamani with, with the dollar. Do you, do you have any opinions on the ruble being strengthened with, you know, how Russia is still selling to India, still selling to China, and recently Saudi Arabia said it's going to start selling its oil in, in the yuan. So I think all of that kind of destabilizes the dollar. It makes it weak. So my question is, do you think, you know, do you have any opinions on that? And really, does Ukraine have to pay the money back? Yeah, well, so as easy, there are no conditions whatsoever. Some of this money is just, you know, humanitarian aid to rebuild Ukrainian civil society, to rebuild their infrastructure. It's just 
you know, handing money over to Ukraine based on the idea that making Ukraine strong will make Russia weak. Obviously, there's no conditions of payback or anything else like that. Um, and my guess is the advocates of the aid would say, you know, the last thing we should be doing is asking Ukrainians who are under a barrage of aggression and attack to be paying anyone back. Um, if anything, I think there's kind of we're going to just completely dismantle Russia the way Germany was dismantled after the war and use its assets to compensate in a form of kind of a um, recompense to, to Ukraine or the international community. But I don't think any of that's real. And I don't think anyone cares about the money for the reason. The second part of your question, I, you know, this is the stuff that I've been having to pay a lot more attention to and, and definitely don't pretend to be an expert in at all. But one of the things I've been doing a lot of over the last couple of years is reading about the U.S.-Saudi relationship. And one of the, you know, bizarre parts of the U.S.-Saudi relationship is that it completely negates all forms of U.S. rhetorical propaganda. It's very hard to claim, even though the U.S. manages to convince its own population that it's true, but not anyone else, that we're really interested in fighting for democracy around the world and defeating despotism. When every year we pour huge amounts of money into propping up one of the most brutal ty- tyrannies on the planet, which is the Saudi monarchy. And I've been doing it for decades, all the same, same in Egypt, during the Cold War, all over the world. But the, the reason for that is, and the reason nobody questions that U.S.-Saudi relationship is because the deal has always been that we will provide protection for the Saudis as long as they ensure that the oil market stays tied to the dollar, which is what makes the dollar the key currency for the world and gives us all that power. And Saudi Arabia's recent kind of move toward using other currencies to buy uh, oil to basically tell the U.S. to fuck off when the U.S. was trying to demand kind of a separation from Russia or an attempt to put more oil on the market to make it easier to avoid Russian oil shows that the Saudis are for whatever reason, perceiving that the U S is not nearly as important to it as it once was, or maybe they're gambling that the U S just has no choice, especially now, but to keep protecting the Saudis given the, the damage that the Saudis can inflict. But clearly, and I think this is what's scaring the United States a great deal and why the propaganda is so strong trying to hide it. The fact that countries like China and India and Saudi Arabia are avoiding these sanctions regimes and are starting to talk about buying oil with different currencies, including the, the ruble, that is a great threat to the United States. Um, and obviously, the U.S. is going to do everything possible to prevent it. But I think the more the U.S. involves itself in the war in Ukraine and start to say that our interests depend upon winning the more vulnerable we become to all of these other kinds of attempts by these other competitors to undermine U.S. power. Um, it's just, you know, Hitler learned you can't fight always his big mistake. And if we're really going to be all in in the war view now that we can't possibly allow Russia to win because Russia winning will be a U.S. loss, which is absolutely the, the corner the U.S. has painted itself into if it wasn't the strategy from the start. That's obviously going to leave us very vulnerable because we're going to be very dependent on a lot of other countries that are starting to sow their oats of independence, 
from the United States. Um, and you're certain you're seeing that, you know, in, in, uh, in those transactions that you mentioned. Um, next person, I can't see your name. Um, oh, it's Sheila. Go ahead, Sheila. Hi, Glenn. I'm glad to talk to you again. Uh, I think that one of the things that came up today that I, that I flagged is, is problematic in regards to the price tag that just got astronomically huge is that is that the State Department started rulemaking with the DOD at Cyber Command. And Cyber Command isn't always, you know, like the Internet. Cyber Command is typically space and aerospace. And when that happens, aerospace is very expensive when it gets out of the jet range and gets into, like, SpaceX and uh, satellites, satlinks, um because everything's built with gold paneling. And so when they launch things, also the launches are very expensive. So I have two kind of, you know, leverages, I think. One is that there's a lot of uh, self-dealing in Congress, and there's no barrier. That's that's my, my initial theory. You can... You can rule it out or give pros and cons to whether or not it is self-dealing because of Biden's involvement with Ukraine as evidence strongly with Burisma. Sorry. I'm really mad about the price tag. And then this other problem with the ISS uh, satellite uh, being weaponized to, to fall onto NATO countries and just take them out. That's what Putin threatened in February. If he had, an escalation in war is that he would just, he would just drop the ISS onto NATO. That's it. So I'll just let you respond either or yes. And what do you think? Yeah, no, you know, I think what all of these questions thus far, these very insightful and complex, sophisticated questions reveal more than anything is just how, how obfuscating the propaganda narrative is. So if you listen to most political and uh, journalistic elites, media elites, they know very little about what's happening in Ukraine, even though they have very strong opinions about it, other than Putin and Russia are evil. The Ukrainians are innocent. The war is resulting in all kinds of atrocities and therefore it's the moral thing to do to help the Ukrainians to express solidarity with Ukraine. And that's about it. And maybe they have an extra view about why Russia is evil, extending to their attacks on our democracy or the role they played in Syria or something like that, that they might've just learned recently. And in reality, when you're talking about tens of billions of dollars flying around, and that's just from Washington, there's also obviously lots of similar uh, contracts and transactions in, in, in London and Brussels and Berlin and Paris. Um, and then obviously on the, the Russian side with China and the international oil market and the weapons market, you're talking about incredibly complicated dynamics at play that are driving so much of this that bear almost no resemblance to the propagandistic narrative that we're just constantly being fed and happily ingesting. And this more than anything is uh, I'm you know, not the happy. frustration, you know, it's, and especially when it's on social media, you know, where 
everything is just sort of popping up in your screen, an image to make you angry, an image to get you emotional. The, you know, ability to have complex discussions is deliberately truncated. And all you can do is just sort of ingest little bits and pieces of a simplistic moral narrative that are very effective. So I don't think that that's a qualifier for the amount of money that we're throwing around here. Uh, Cyber Command would obfuscate anything that they're trying to pay for because they, they are clandestine. And I don't think they really want the public to, to really have a, a, a good eye on what they're doing. They never do. But I don't want to pay for this. That's all. I, I really urge everyone, don't, don't pay for this. Ask them to not pay for this. That's, yeah, that's all I have uh, to say. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's uh, – I, I, I fear that at least for now um, that's falling on deaf ears. The history of U.S. wars is – the population tends to side with the U.S. government at the beginning and starts to have that kind of inebriation wear off, but it takes time. And then by the end, majorities believe they were deceived and the war was a mistake. And the idea is to accelerate that process so we don't have to wait, you know, six years before we're still we're still in a war in Ukraine that no one understands the purpose of or what we're doing. Um, thank you for that, Sheila. Uh, next up um, is Beckham. Go ahead, Beckham. So you're you're muted. In order to unmute yourself, you have to click the microphone icon at the bottom of your screen. There's probably like a little uh, red hi. line. Right, there you, you go. Oh, yep. Sorry about that. No uh, worries. I I'm I I was uh, heavily involved in the anti-war movement uh, during Iraq, and uh, it was Scott Ritter who convinced me that there were no weapons of mass destruction and that we were heading into a quagmire. And I remember there were all the like, even though it, there was a lot of support for the war in Iraq, there was also a lot of dissent. Like, I went to protests in L.A. that were filled with celebrities in the weeks leading up to it. And there were lots of journalists writing about what a bad idea it was, like Chris Hayes. And it seems like someone like him should know to, like, listen to someone like Scott Ritter again. And, you know, people who wrote books about the dangers of and how easily it is to drift into war when you allow weapons contractors too much influence in the government seem to be for this war and our involvement in it. And I wonder if you have um, any insight into why that is. Um, and uh, uh, really quick, also, is there anything we can do to like st- start a movement to abolish the CIA and uh, uh secret warmongers. Thank you. Yeah. You know, the, so on the first part, um, it gets into the politics. And I think one of the things that got overlooked and that gets overlooked is how strong a role partisanship plays in where people fall on, in terms of opposition to, or support for a war. So, people like Chris Hayes and, you know, tons of people at the time were opposed to the Iraq war. And it was easy for them to be opposed to the Iraq war because the primary advocates of it, the people who controlled the white house were Republicans and not just any Republicans, but George Bush, who a year and a half earlier, they believed had stolen the election and become illegitimately the president and Dick Cheney, who by this point was representative to them of all things evil And neoconservatives, who they had grown to believe, kind of spawned from Satan. 
And, you know, for the for a large number of people who are opposed to the war, they were not opposed to the war, it turns out, on principle, because they ended up supporting so many wars with similar justifications when change when the control of the White House changed from Republican to Democrat. They were behind the war in Libya. They were happy to support regime change in, in Syria. And you see them now barely uttering a peep now that Biden is in office. And like one of the things that I've always wondered, and you know, we'll never know the real answer to this, but one of the main reasons Barack Obama beat Hillary Clinton in the 2008 Democratic primary, which was a war, and you know, he was very unlikely to win given the, the Clinton machine was completely dominant in Democratic Party politics. I mean, in terms of money and funder, they controlled everything. The main reason he won, or certainly one of them, was that in 2002, he spoke out against the Iraq war while Hillary Clinton was in the United States Senate and advocated for it and voted for it. And the big question for me is, you know, Obama spoke out against the war at a time when he wasn't a U.S. Senator representing Illinois, but when he was a U.S., uh, when he was a member of the Illinois State House representing one of the most liberal districts in Chicago, Hyde Park and the University of Chicago, where he was teaching representing as liberal of a district as it gets, where he basically couldn't have been for the Iraq war. And he gets to the Senate in 2004 and he, you know, joins the wing of the party that is very much like Joe Biden, John Kerry, Hillary Clinton, all those kind of moderates who voted for the war. And I think it's a really open question whether he's an extremely lucky politician, because had he been in the Senate instead of the Illinois State House, there's a good chance he would have voted for the war. So I think that's part of it is, there's a big partisan aspect. Very few people on the left want to oppose a war that it's the Biden administration leading. I also think that there was an effective propaganda and rhetorical tactic from the beginning that said the, the real anti-war position is to support Ukraine because the aggressor is unlike in Iraq where it was the United States, in this case is Russia. So if you're on Russia's side, it means you're pro-war or pro-imperialism, since Russia is the aggressor, the imperialistic party, the invader. The way to be anti-war is to side with Ukraine. Now, that was ridiculous for so many reasons. But at least at the beginning of the war, there was some rhetorical logic to it. Now that the U.S. is pouring enormous sums of money and massive amounts of heavy weaponry into a war zone with the specific intention of winning the war, it's impossible to say that the people who support that policy are the anti-war movement. They're clearly the pro-war movement. They just believe, like pro-war people always do, that the war is justified and they're on the right side. So I think that's part of it, too, is that played a big role in how anti-war and pro-war got defined from the beginning. And then, you know, the best person who wrote about some of these changes is actually Chris Hayes, the person who you raised as an example in 2010, he wrote a book called Twilight of the Elites that was a condemnation of elite culture. And the kind of pioneering concept of his book to which he devoted two or three chapters was what he called cognitive capture, by which he meant that if you enter a, a kind of institution of authority or power in the United States, such as a big media corporation like NBC News, no matter how well-intentioned you are when you enter, no matter how smart you are, no matter how resistant you think you're being, no matter how much you convince yourself that you're only going there to subvert it from the inside, eventually it will subsume your judgment. It will force you to view the world through its prism. 
just because it's so well constituted with so many incentives and weapons to start forcing you to see the world through its mentality, through its worldview. And I think I war in 2002, like Chris Hayes, who are on the outside of institutions, are now well ensconced in these institutions of power and therefore see the world through those prisms exactly how Chris warned presciently would happen before he went to NBC. Question of the CIA. Obviously, I think the CIA is a malevolent force in American political life, both foreign policy and and, and increasingly our domestic politics. That used to be a completely foundational view on the American left. And one of the reasons why people perceive that my politics have changed, even though I don't believe they have at all, is because antipathy to the CIA is now found almost entirely on the populist right, largely because Trump imported so much of it into the Republican Party. No one on the left is going to say that they like the CIA because the ethos to be against it is so generationally embedded. But even for those people who say they're against the CIA, it's not even remotely a priority to them. On their list of enemies, there's a hundred different things, racism and fascism and white nationalism and the Trump movement and conservatism and all the rest that are way before the CIA on their list. I don't think they really care about the CIA. I think on some level they even view them as an ally. And antipathy toward the CIA is just generally found more to the right than on the left, just like opposition to the U.S. role in And so that has always been my view. That's always been my politics. And it's not my fault that the ground is shifted under me and that there's more of a movement on the right than a left and more uh, hospitableness to more more receptiveness to that view on the right than the left. Um, And one of the projects I hope to kind of reinvigorate is the idea that the populist left and populist right have a lot more in common than they realize, not just things like trade and anti-corporatism, but a lot of uh, opposition to the deep state and U.S. militarism as well. All right. Um, Thank you for that question. I'm going to move to the next caller, who is Kylie. Riley? Sorry, when your names are, before you light up, it's hard to see your name, but Hi, Glenn. Thank Kelly, you so much. Kelly, Kelly, right? For doing... Sorry about yeah, that. Yeah, Kelly, Kelly, no worries. Yeah, welcome. Thank you. For Thank doing you. what you do. Um, I, I guess my question is about um, if you think that the uh, Supreme Court leak will in some way open up a door for some more moderated uh, or at least, I guess, honest um, viewpoints on the conflict between Russia and U- Ukraine and at least the American media market uh, to come through because the most ideological uh, on the right, certainly, and, and, you know, on the left to some degree will be frothing over um, Roe versus Wade rather than uh, maybe this or something else that, that would take up, uh, well, I I guess make it a lot easier for people to just stay silent because they don't want to be aligned with uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, for example. And if, in fact, you think that there's an opportunity for that, where would you, where do you think it'll come from? Like, where can we look for some uh, better perspectives aside from you? Thank you. Yeah, I mean, you know, look, and again, I mean, there are, you know, again, people who are doing good work um, in these areas. It's just unfortunately nowhere near the the majority. They tend to be kind of excluded to the fringes um, or, or confined to just a couple of places here and there. You know, one of the things I actually worry about with, 
Roe versus Wade being overruled, whether it's the right or the wrong decision, is that, you know, I want to be careful about how I say this, but whenever Americans are fighting with one another internally, like neighbor to neighbor over culture war issues, like abortion or LGBT issues or things of that nature. And I don't want to minimize what I call culture war issues. A lot of times people use that term as a kind of diminishing phrase to mean like it only has trivial importance. I don't think it does. I think these issues might be very important. But whenever we're fighting with one another over these things, and obviously overruling Roe versus Wade is going to unleash just immense amounts of polarization. You know, in every state now, there will be wars to over abortion laws and, and, and it'll take center stage in so many ways that I do believe power centers benefit greatly because look at all the questions that got asked in the first you know hour of this discussion about where this money is going to and who's skimming off the top and who's corruptly enriching themselves and what lies are being told. Like the, the less attention these institutions have, these security state agencies, these military and industrial alliances have, the better. And the more we're fighting about trans issues and Roe and abortion, which again, I'm not saying are unimportant, the more divided we're going to be fighting against one another and the less we're going to be viewing ruling power elites as our common enemy. And I don't know what the solution to that is because people do view these issues as important and, you know, in some ways they are important. Um, But one of the things that I hope this kind of new media ecosystem and this realignment is doing. And I've seen this in, in a lot of ways, you know, obviously I have better relations with the American right than I have, you know, in my career, but at the same time, um, you know, there are a lot of disagreements I have with my conservative readers and the way that I respect them and they respect me is by not pretending that we don't over things like how we see Israel and Palestine or, um, how we see some of these culture war issues. Like you don't need total agreement on every issue in order to form meaningful coalitions with people, including our fellow citizens. And that's one of the reasons why I find this like very rigid and repressive political mentality that the minute somebody disagrees with you, you declare them your enemy, you expel them from your life. You, you know, refuse to even talk to them if they're a member of your family. So destructive. Because it's exactly the opposite that we need more than anything, which is the ability to work together through our differences and realize that the, the actual enemy are the people who are running the system at our expense, the ones who are causing these billions and billions of dollars to fly around to the benefit of virtually nobody but themselves. And I don't know, I remain optimistic about people's willingness to open their eyes and in some way, whether intended or not, whether bungling or not, I do think that that was the most beneficial impact that Trump had was he was so unconventional in his politics and his comportment. You know, he basically won the GOP nomination by running against Reaganomics and the Bush Cheney foreign policy orthodoxy that he couldn't help but just pick up the, you know, the kind of globe of snow and water inside and just shake it for five straight years. And obviously the snow is going to fall in much different places. And in that chaos, I find opportunity. Um, So yeah, Roe versus Wade is probably going to be overturned. That's probably going to unleash a lot of culture war fighting, 
But I still think that people are going to have the ability to keep their eyes on these bigger issues because they've come to realize how much it, it impacts and, and harms their lives. Thanks, Glenn. All right. Thank you. Have a great evening. All right. Um, next caller is, what can I see today? Is it my glasses not being cleaned? I think it's Paul. Hey, Glenn. How are you doing? Hey, Paul. Good. How are you? Uh, I'm doing really well. It is so nice to talk to you. You're like one of the, you know, that, that game where you imagine who you would invite to dinner and you got 12 people, you and Cornell West would definitely be on my list. So Thank and Chris you. Hedges. I would love to attend someday. If you <laughs> All right. If I ever get it together, but um, I, I wanted to ask you if you caught um, uh, Jimmy Dore's interview with uh and the Ethiopian uh, journalist and activist uh, just recently. Um, I, I'm sorry, I can't pronounce her name. I it's didn't. Like Harari. No, I didn't. I okay. didn't see anything about it's, it. It's, I didn't see the interview. Oh, it's quite it's quite good. Um, I and the reason why I want to bring it up is I actually lived in East Africa. Um, my wife is Ugandan. I lived in Rwanda and I lived in Uganda, and they're both U.S.-backed dictatorships. And one of the things that I find really interesting is how, um, like in the process of manufacturing consent, we're always talking about like a regional event, right? Like like U.S. starts a war and suddenly we learn geography and we talk about that one area. And I just finished uh, the Jakarta method a few months ago. And it was just so fascinating to me to see how this systematic uh, system of establishing like a colonial capitalistic presence in countries that are withholding resources just rolls over like a steamroller country after country after country. And so right now, all of our attention is on Ukraine and the U.S. is is trying to roll over Ethiopia. And what goes on in Ethiopia is tied to Sudan, South Sudan, and certainly Museveni in Uganda. He's been in power over 40 years uh, on a U.S. payroll. So I think it's it's really fascinating how, you know, we look at, like, uh, how the coverage were like, okay, it's clearly that the propaganda machine wants you to care about white people, uh, Ukrainians, who are possibly Christian, who, you know, yes, they don't speak English, but they, they look white, they look Christian, and therefore they matter more than uh, people in Yemen. And, and so those of us on the left, we often respond to that, like, oh, we need to talk about Ukraine. But yet the majority of coverage is all Ukraine, all Ukraine. And I I have friends, good friends, who really care about the world. They don't know what a a Yemeni flag looks like. They certainly don't know what a Ugandan or Rwandan flag or or Congo. And, you know, I've lived in this area that has a death toll in the millions because of U.S. involvement. And I'm, I'm wondering if you can talk about that as far as how we respond to the manufacturing of consent, you know, um, the, the U S sort of like propaganda machine throws up a topic and we all go crazy on that topic. And then they move on to another one and we forget all about what we were talking about last week. So I'm wondering if you can talk about how, how do we change the narrative so that we include the Brown and the black countries that are paying with their lives for in the in the case of Congo, you know, our, our phones um, uh, are full of Congolese minerals. Uh, millions of Congolese have died for our phones, and 
Yeah, it never really enters into the dialogue because the people that control the narrative are not, you know, they don't ever hammer that issue. You know, they don't have to manufacture consent for the manufacturer of cell phones using Congolese minerals. I'm, I'm wondering yeah, if you can talk about that. Yeah, sure. Well, so first of all, um, you mentioned uh, about recent U.S. history and the kind of role of the U.S. foreign policy establishment and, and, and the CIA, which is the Jakarta method by right. a great reporter uh, whose name is Vincent Bevins. He actually covered Brazil uh, for several years while I was here and got to know him personally pretty well. I interviewed him about his book. And it's really a fantastic book. Um, the Jakarta method refers to what the CIA did in supporting an incredibly murderous tyrant in Indonesia and how that was repeated in places around the world like Guatemala and elsewhere. It just dives into the history of several of those really nefarious CIA plots. Um, and a similar book that I also cannot recommend highly enough um, is a book by David Talbot, T-A-L-B-O-T, who was the founder of Salon.com, actually, though you shouldn't let that uh, prejudice your view of him because his book is amazing and it's called The Devil's Chessboard. Yep, and it's, it's uh, amazing. Kind of, yeah, it's a, a history of the CIA, basically how the CIA and the U.S. national security state was created in the wake of World War II, primarily by the Dulles brothers, Alan Dulles, who was the CIA director, uh, under Eisenhower for the entire presidency and then into the Kennedy administrations. He was fired after the Bay of Pigs um, and his brother, John Foster Dulles, who was the uh, secretary of state. And they basically ran U.S. foreign policy. The Dulles brothers did in an incredibly sociopathic way. Dulles Airport is obviously named after John Foster Dulles. Um, but mm-hmm. it really is very eye opening, um, both of those books. Um and on your question of, you know, this kind of who gets attention and who doesn't, I have to say, you know, I do think the racial component that you're raising is definitely a factor. We saw that explicitly during especially the first week or so during the war when people in Europe, but also the United States were just outright saying, oh, my God, it's one thing to see scenes like this in Iraq or, you know, Afghanistan where you expect it. But this is Ukraine. This is a European country. And obviously, you know, they were, they were even saying things like these people look like us, you know, they don't, they don't look like some exotic foreign place where you expect violence. They look like us, they behave like us, their society is European. So I do think part of the ability propagandistically to get people to care about Ukraine in the beginning, part of it was based on that. But I don't think we should overstate that because when, we want when when the U.S. wants wars to disappear for whatever reason, they disappear them. Mm. And when they want to highlight suffering, they highlight suffering. I mean, a major part of how the U.S. and the U.K. convinced its citizens to support the war in Iraq was by touting the evils of Saddam. The first Gulf War was, you know, he was ripping babies out of incubators, which turned out to be not true. That was, you know, the way to get people to hate Saddam so much that we wanted to go to war. The second one was he used gas, you know, he's gassed his own his own people, which was true, although he did it at a time when the U.S. was his close ally. Um, you know, same with Gaddafi and his oppression of Libyans, same with Assad and his oppression of Syrians. And I noticed this for the first time, actually, in 2006. So it was like a year after I had begun writing. And Republicans at the time, you know, had been using opposition to gay, gay marriage as a kind of cynical political tool to make sure they won the 2002 midterms and then the 2004 presidential election 
because by then the Iraq war was unpopular, but they got evangelical voters to turn out by putting referenda on a bunch of state ballots to amend the constitution of all these states to ban gay marriage. It was a cynical but smart ploy by Karl Rove. And then suddenly in 2005 or 2006, when a lot of the more extremist neocons started wanting to leave Baghdad and go to Tehran and overthrow the Iranian government, there was a kind of notorious quote from an, uh, an anonymous neocon. Um, it was probably Richard Pearl or Paul Wolfowitz who said, real men go to Baghdad. You know, kind of wimps are satisfied with overthrowing Saddam, but real men go to Tehran. I mean, Tehran, right. meaning right. we're, we're going to overthrow. And right at that time, there started to be all these stories about the persecution of gay men by the Iranian theocracy, you know, stories about them hanging from cranes, they're being thrown off buildings. Suddenly there was like this great sympathy for the plight of Muslim homosexuals, you know, and, you know, you just noticed out of nowhere and you, then you obviously start realizing it's not like a sincere interest. It's, it's, and, and, you know, part of the war in Afghanistan was justified by concern over Afghan women. Laura Bush wrote a famous op-ed in the LA Times in November of 2001, right before the war began, about how we were going to free Afghan women from the Taliban. So I think you're right that the racial component is used and exploited when it's it's useful. Um, But I think there's a lot of other factors at play in terms of which wars and which suffering and which repression get highlighted and which get ignored. Yeah, uh, you know, I was... Glenn, I was actually in Rwanda in 2012 and 13. Um, and at that time, I was going back and forth from Uganda. And that was when the big, like, Uganda hates gays. They're, they're going to kill gays. And Uganda is an extremely homophobic country. Uh, but I saw Obama step up. But it was so interesting to watch how the U.S. like highlighted the, the Uganda hates gays uh, and is going to kill them message versus... Uganda's on our payroll, and we've been using Uganda to kill millions of Congolese for a couple of decades now. You know, so it was so interesting to watch the the heightened compassion of my gay friends in the, in the United States for mine and my wife's work for Uganda. But as soon as the issue like uh, went off the radar, like the blip ended, it was like. Oh, it doesn't exist anymore. The country is now, you know, in the in off the off the mental consciousness of most American friends. But I, I think I I actually read the Devil's Chessboard my last trip to Uganda, and I landed at Dulles for a connection uh, while I was listening to the book on the on the trip. Yeah, it's ironic. It, it, that is named after one of America's worst monsters in the late twentieth century. Um, yeah, was, you know, just quickly was, on this um, yeah. on this last point, you know. Uh, people have, have made a lot, mostly in terms of light mockery of, you know, the CIA getting woke and talking about their non-binary operatives and, you know, Women's Day and LGBT Day right. and the CHQ, like, lighting up its headquarters in the rainbow flag. And it is mockable and all that, but there's a purpose behind it, a pretty, like, significant and nefarious purpose, which is woke ideology has become, like, a major prong of American military propaganda. You know, a right. big part of how people see Russia and Ukraine is that Russia is in Putin are this like, you know, extremely uh, aggressively anti LGBT country 
Whereas Ukrainians have, you know, like trans women in, 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 in their military. Um, and this ability to use American cultural tropes to justify who we're supposed to hate and who we're supposed to like abroad um, has definitely become a major, major propagandistic weapon of the U.S. foreign policy establishment that they wield, you know, basically at will. Um, so, all right, Paul, yep. thank you uh, very much for that uh, excellent contribution. I'm going to try and take one more caller because um, we're coming up on the 90 minute mark. Uh, I think he has named himself Neo Realist. So if you're there um, and you can unmute yourself, we should be able to hear you. Oh, hi, Glenn. Um, I'm Alex. Um, so hey, Alex. Um, I, I just want uh, I just want to let you know the build for the forty billion dollar aid to Ukraine just passed three sixty eight to fifty seven, which is depressing. Um, also, I noticed that this bill had a lot of had a, has a huge chunk part that's going to the CIA, which would um, reinforce obviously and strengthen their ability to do all the terrible things they've been doing so far. So, I recently like saw a post I think um, from. Um, J.D. Vance, who won the Ohio primary, and and Trump, in one of his rallies, raising the idea of saying that he will try to pass a bill if he becomes president to make sure that all pe- officials in the deep state that's under the executive branch will be allowed to be fired by the president. So his logic is that that will allow that will prevent the deep state from creating their own kind of private kind of organizations and power structure that kind of is independent of the president's influence. Um, do you think that's a good idea or no? Um, and also just a quick second question is, do you think there is any potential among the progressive side of, of American politics to kind of regain their kind of anti-war, anti-colonialist stance? Because Ber- obviously Bernie, AOC, and many of these people Ilan Omar, to a certain extent, kind of still preserves it, but many of them kind of abandon those principles. Do you think there's any potential for them to kind of restore those in the coming future? Okay, thank you. Yeah, thanks. Well, so I had not, uh, I did not know uh, that there was just a vote that took place while we were speaking until you mentioned it. And so I quickly searched as I was listening to your comments and what I see here is from CNN. Because when you said there were 57 no votes, that was surprising to me. I didn't expect there to be that many. And I was anxious to see what vote for a no. And what I found instead was the following. Representatives voted 368 to 57 on Tuesday evening to pass a roughly $40 billion bill to deliver aid to Ukraine as it, contains to, as it continues to face Russia's brutal assault. All 57 votes in opposition were from Republicans. So I don't know if the squad abstained. I don't know if they voted yes. Um, Probably someone in the chat does no, and we'll find out very soon. But regardless, uh, all 57 votes in opposition were from Republicans, um, which I think gives you a pretty clear answer about where the left and and where the Democratic Party are, they are in complete lockstep unity behind not just the general view that Russia is to blame, but obviously the view that the United States should sacrifice a huge amount of its resources in order to fuel that war, given the vote that we just saw. My guess is in the Senate, 
it will be close to unanimous. Um, so that kind of answers your question and the question that I've been raising about just the utter lack of dissent on the part of whatever passes for the American left when it comes to um, the war in Afghanistan. Um, so yeah, it was a, that's a great way to end the show actually because it kind of ties together all the different themes we've been discussing. Um, I really honestly love doing this show because the quality of the comments and the questions are uniformly very sophisticated. It often teaches me things that I hadn't already thought about or learned. Um, it makes it super engaging and exciting to be able to have this interactive conversation about complicated topics um, rather than just writing for people and not hearing back from them or only hearing back in like a flying YouTube box or in a truncated comment section. So um, I'm really grateful for this platform. I'm really appreciative for everybody who continues to come back each week and participate. Um, for those who I didn't get to, as always, please come back and I will always try and get to as many people as I can. And thank you everybody uh, who attended and listened for all or even some of the show. Um, I hope you'll continue to come back and I'm zeroing in on a regular time, like I said, either Monday or Tuesday, 9 p.m. Eastern seems like a good time. So I hope to see you back shortly. Have a great week, everybody. Bye-bye.